The following audio is from Axe Church in Leander, Texas. More information about Axe is available at axechurchleander.com. Taming the tongue. Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boast. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is restless evil, full of deadly poison. With the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Good morning. How are we this morning? Fantastic. It's so great to be back with you. I love being here at Axe. Uh, it's always, always a privilege for me. My name is Matt Tolander. I'm the leadership development pastor at Midtown Church in Austin. And uh, before we get going, just want to say happy Father's Day to all the dads. I hope that you feel celebrated. I hope that you feel honored today. And uh, I also know that there may be some here today for whom Father's Day is a, is a day that brings maybe some feeling of sadness or uh, of grief or regret or disappointment. And I want you to know this morning that your Father in Heaven sees you and that He understands how you're feeling today if today is a tough day for you. So my prayer for you this morning is that you would experience the comfort that can come only from a perfect Heavenly Father. Uh, I was so excited when Josh asked me to speak, and he asked me to speak on James chapter 3, because it just makes preaching so easy, because uh, we just read it, and um, it's not really hard to understand at all. And you don't really need me to explain it to you. It's not a difficult chapter to wrap our heads around. James is such an incredible writer. He's such an effective teacher. Um, so there's not really all that much for me to clarify or explain or flesh out this morning. And uh, if you'll recall, we did a series in James a couple years ago that we called Practical Faith. And in that series, Tanner Olson came and preached a message on James 3 that was just incredible. And I really can't improve upon what he talked about in that message on the power of words. So I really encourage you this week to actually just go back in the podcast and go find his message and listen to that. Because it was, it was really fantastic. Um, James's primary concern in this letter is spiritual maturity. 
So the book of James is instruction in how to be spiritually mature, especially through and as a result of suffering in our lives. So he's already explained in chapters one and two how spiritual maturity develops through response to suffering and how spiritual maturity is enhanced by our response to the word of God. And so here in chapter three, he connects it to our speech. And essentially his teaching in verses one through 12 of chapter three is that tongue mastery is a measure of spiritual maturity. Tongue mastery is a measure of spiritual maturity. So we can measure the spiritual maturity of others by how well they control their speech. And then more importantly, we can look at ourselves and we can assess our own spiritual maturity by how well we do when it comes to controlling the tongue. So that's a very simple idea to get. And so what I want to do this morning actually is I want to, I thought it'd be fun to sort of get to the idea behind the idea of some of what James is talking about here. Because one of James's concerns in this portion of the letter that we've just, we just read together is that our speech is incredibly powerful. It's powerful. And think about the way that he talked about it. He says a small rudder that can steer a huge ship. He says it's a world of evil. It's a fire. It's full of deadly poison. James is very concerned with the power of our tongue. Our words are loaded with spiritual significance. And I want to explore this morning a little bit about why that is. I want to try to explain it. So we're going to zero in on verses 9 and 10 from this chapter where James says this, With it, the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. So James connects our speech to these powerful spiritual forces of blessing and cursing. And even if you couldn't offer this morning off the top of your head a clear definition or a biblical definition or a theological definition of these ideas of blessing and cursing, I know that all of us in this room have experienced being blessed by someone's speech or being cursed by it. And even if you wouldn't call yourself a follower of Jesus or if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, I'd still, I'd, I'd still wager to guess that you've experienced being blessed or cursed by someone's speech. And when I say being blessed or cursed by someone's speech, I don't mean that someone said a nice word to you or someone said a naughty word to you. It's more than that. Because we know that sometimes someone can say something to us and it buries itself in our hearts, and it sticks with us, doesn't it? And these words, once they bury themselves in our hearts, they begin to shape us. They begin to name us, and they begin to affect the way that we think about ourselves, either for better or for worse. And so what I want to do this morning is talk about why that is. Why is it that our words can be loaded with such spiritual Significance. So we're going to talk about these forces of blessing and cursing. And I'm going to help you understand them from a whole Bible perspective. And then we'll talk a bit about how they relate to our speech. So blessing and cursing are central themes in Scripture. I'd go as far as to say that they are the central themes of the Scripture. They are the spiritual forces that shape both our identity and our destiny as human beings. There are three words from the original languages that are translated blessing when the Bible is translated into English. In the Old Testament, it's the Hebrew word barak, barak, which means to speak the intention of God or to be happy 
where you are. In the New Testament, we have two Greek words. The first one is eulogia, which is the Greek prefix eu, which means good, and logia, which means words. So literally, the, the, the word eulogia means good words. It means to speak larger or to speak well of. For example, it's where we get our English word eulogy. Or it means to speak the intention or favor of God on someone. And the other Greek word that we find in the New Testament is the word makarios, which means blessed or happy. This is the word that's used, for example, in the Beatitudes at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Dallas Willard describes blessing this way. He says, blessing is the projection of good into the life of another. It's the projection of good into the life of another. In other words, to bless someone is to desire that God's favor and God's goodness and God's purpose would be the dominant reality of that person's life. And I want to trace these these concepts of blessing and cursing through the entire Bible together this morning. So we have a lot to cover. We're beginning at the beginning, and what we see is that the whole story of God's interaction with humanity begins with blessing. It begins with blessing. Genesis 1, 27 and 28. God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So what we see is that humanity is blessed first and then is given the mandate to work the earth. So we weren't created to live and work for blessing from God. We were created to live and work from blessing from God. And this deep sense of being loved and wanted and known and blessed by God is what marks us as God's image bearers in the world, not just our will or our consciousness or our intelligence or our creativity. It's our sense of blessing. It's the sense of belonging that comes from knowing that God wants us to operate out of this place of blessing. But Satan's plan from the beginning has always been to try and get us to seek blessing apart from God. Satan wants to separate us from, from blessing, which is our source of true identity and destiny, and he wants to introduce into our lives false identities and destinies for us to cultivate and pursue. So if you'll remember, Satan's lie in Genesis chapter 3 to Adam and Eve is that God was withholding blessing from them, and they were deceived. And Adam and Eve's choice to seek blessing apart from God ushered in the brokenness of life without God. And theologians call this the fall, but I think it could be equally or maybe more accurately called the curse. And the effects of the curse on Adam and Eve are fourfold. The first is that they were forced to leave their home, and they were separated from the direct presence of God. They were separated from the direct presence of God. The struggle for power was introduced into their relationship and then consequently into every other human relationship. And they were forced to live and work in a world that was cursed. So they still had their call to create and cultivate and fill the earth and subdue it, but the curse of sin was now woven into the fabric of everything that they would do. And here's our definition of the curse this morning. The curse is our rejection of or resistance to God's intentions resulting in his displeasure, which produces dysfunction and destruction in our lives. 
The curse is our rejection of or resistance to God's intention, which results in his displeasure and produces dysfunction and destruction in our lives. So when the curse entered into the human story, it bled into all we are and do and all we make. It affects our thoughts. It affects our desires and our emotions. It affects our words and our actions. It it affects our relationships, and it affects our work. And the curse is the root, but the fruit of the curse comes in many forms. One of the, the fruits of the curse, the most obvious one, is personal sin. Our personal sin is a result of the curse. And here's how the curse perpetuates itself in our personal sin, is that when we sin and we mess up and we do the thing that we know that we weren't supposed to do or when we fail to do the thing that we know we ought to do, we experience feelings of guilt and we might experience feelings of shame. And when we get stuck in a cycle of guilt and shame, what that does is it causes us to give ourselves permission to keep doing the things that we did before that are causing the guilt and shame. Because shame says you can never get it right. Shame says you can only get it wrong, and so you might as well just do the wrong thing. Or, uh, as a way of trying to uh, remedy the feelings of guilt and shame, we might just turn back to the same thing that led us to feel that way in the first place. And it creates a cycle of destructive behavior. The other way the curse perpetuates itself in in our personal sin is that oftentimes we're tempted towards self-justification. So when we mess up, we get the feeling that it's, it's our responsibility now to fix ourselves or that it's our responsibility to heal ourselves. And we know biblically that's not true. We have to come to God for healing. It's the Holy Spirit's responsibility to sanctify us and make us like Jesus. It's actually not our responsibility. But we feel this urge to justify ourselves and to try and make ourselves righteous. The curse perpetuates itself in self-righteousness. Another fruit of the curse is generational transfer. Generational transfer. You may have heard the phrase generational sin. Uh, I don't really love the phrase generational sin. Um, There are some pockets and groups and thinkers in Christianity who believe that God punishes children for the sin of their parents. I don't think that comports with Scripture. I don't think God punishes the uh, children for the sins of their parents. But when the parents' sins become the children's sins through learned behavior or when the parent sins damage the child, uh, dysfunction is perpetuated, and the curse is transferred generationally from parents to children to grandchildren and on. I, uh, I recently started seeing a therapist, which has been awesome, and I can't recommend it enough to you. If you feel like maybe you need to go to therapy, you need to go, and if you feel like you don't need to go, then you need to go. And. Uh, I started seeing him because of like a very specific issue, and uh, like 20 minutes into our first session, he started asking me about my parents. Um, and why is that? Well, it's because he knows, he knows that adult dysfunction is the product of learned behavior from childhood. This is one way the curse perpetuates itself in generational transfer. Another fruit of the curse is in our words. It's in our words. That's what we're talking about this morning in James 3. Words that crush the spirit or words that lead people into ways of thinking about themselves or thinking about the world or thinking about others that are not the ways that God intended for them to think about those things. We curse people with our silence. When people need to hear something from us and we withhold it, uh, someone needs to hear a word of affirmation or a word of affection and they get silence from us, we curse people with our silence. Here's John Ortberg. 
He says, I used to think cursing someone meant swearing at them or putting a hex on them. So it was pretty easy to avoid because I don't swear much or do hexes. But I realized how wrong I'd been. You can curse someone with a raised eyebrow. You can curse someone with a shrugged shoulder. I've seen a husband curse his wife by leaving just the tiniest delay before saying, of course I love you. The better you know someone, the more subtly and cruelly you can curse them. And when we experience curse through people's behavior, through generational transfer, through personal sin, through people's words, what it does is it creates wounds in us, and those wounds cause us to believe lies and then try and comfort ourselves with idols. So here's what this looks like. Here's a wound. A wound is an area of pain or vulnerability or insecurity in our lives that we don't want others to see or touch. That's a wound. And this is different than a scar. Because a scar is a place where there used to be a wound, but there's been healing that's taken place, and now there's a story of, of healing that's beautiful. A wound is open. A wound is an area where we're hurting. A wound is an area where we're vulnerable, where we're insecure, and where we feel the need to defend ourselves or to try and keep others away. And you've seen this happen in conversations with people if you've been paying attention. Because you will bring something up and you'll, you'll watch them just build the wall right in front of you in conversation. You'll watch them pull away. You'll watch them back up. Why? Because you're getting close to a wound. And you've experienced this in conversation with people when you feel the need to start to get defensive or to try and back away in relationship. It's because someone has maybe gotten close to a wound. And when we have wounds that we let go unaddressed, we're susceptible to believing lies, lies that are fundamental attacks on our identity that distort our self-perception and they affect our thoughts and behavior. So, for example, we start to believe that we have to take matters into our own hands when it comes to our own healing. And that's a lie. When we believe lies, it causes us to distrust God, and it causes us to distrust people. And what happens when we start to feel like we can't trust God and we can't trust people is that we will go somewhere else to try and find comfort and fulfillment. We will turn to idols. Idols are the people or activities or other things in our life that we, where we go to seek for blessing instead of seeking that blessing from God. That's what an idol is. It's anywhere else I go in life to try and seek for blessing, happiness, fulfillment that is not a place where God intended for me to find those things. And here's the problem with idols in our lives is that because they function as little gods for us, idols demand sacrifice. And idols are never fully satisfied. They will take and take and take and take and take from us until we have nothing left to give, leaving us feeling completely empty and broken and ultimately unfulfilled. So all idolatry actually results in slavery. And at best, an idol is a coping mechanism for dealing with our brokenness. But at worst, idols can put us in a cycle of dependence or addiction to something that will never make us whole. And these addictions can be chemical addictions, they can be psychological addictions, emotional addictions, even spiritual addictions. So this is what the curse looks like in human relationships. But the good news is that as, almost nearly as soon as the curse enters into the human experience, God gets right to work with a plan of redemption. So you trace the idea of blessing through the Old Testament. It starts with Abraham and the Abrahamic covenant. God is going to set up a people to represent himself on the earth. And he says to Abraham in Genesis 12, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. 
I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. All people on earth will be blessed through you. So God's plan of redemption has to do with pouring his blessing, pouring his goodness, his favor, his intention, his purpose into our lives with the, with the idea and the intention expectation that the, what we would then distribute that in the world and that we would turn around and be his agents of blessing. And it was so important to God that the people of Israel would know how he really felt about them at the end of the day and that they would remember who they were called to be and the kind of blessing and relationship that they were called to live in with God. That every time they met together, God commanded that they would hear these words from number six. We'll hear them at the end of the service today. Number six, the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron and his sons, this is how you are to bless the Israelites. Say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. So they will put my name on the Israelites and I will bless them. There are all sorts of things in this world that want to put their name on us. God wants to put his name on us. He wants us to live in that kind of blessing. And he gave the nation of Israel the law. And the law was just instructions in how to live the blessed life. The law was instructions on how to live in right relationship with God and right relationship with other people. And I don't know when the last time you read the law was. Um, most of us don't find ourselves reading the book of Deuteronomy unless we're in like our Bible reading plan. And if you're like me, that's where you fall off the Bible reading plan. Uh, but I really encourage you to, to read the law because so much of the Old Testament will never make sense unless you read the law. But you get to, toward the end of the law, and God uh, communicates to the nation of Israel that there are blessings for keeping the law, and there's curses for disobeying the law. And in Deuteronomy 28, you read this, and it starts off so beautifully. It says, if you keep the law, you'll be blessed in the city, and you'll be blessed in the country. You'll be blessed everywhere you go. And he wraps it all up in Deuteronomy 30, saying this, This day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life that you and your children may live. So the entire Old Testament story is that the people of God are called to live in his, his blessing or else suffer the consequences of the curse, which is the consequences of their rebellion and their insistence on doing life on their own terms rather than on God's terms. And we see them uh, go back and forth all the way through the Old Testament, the nation of Israel lives in obedience to the law, is blessed by God, disobeys the law, turns their backs on God, suffers consequences of the curse. It's this up and down story all the way through the Old Testament until we get to Jesus. And Jesus is the model of true humanity. He's the model of true humanity. Jesus is the, the most ultimately fulfilled human being who's ever lived. He's the model of true humanity. And before Jesus begins his ministry, you remember what happens? At his baptism, God the Father speaks down and he says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. Every son needs to hear that from his father. But just like Adam and Eve were blessed before they were given their marching orders, before they were given the creation mandate, Jesus is blessed before he takes on his work of ministry. And Jesus' entire life, his entire ministry, all of his work can be summarized by the word, Blessing. I've heard Josh Miller say a hundred times, everywhere Jesus went, people's lives got better. 
they received new identities. They received new destinies. Ephesians 1, Paul says that Christ has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And I'm just going to tell you, there's nowhere else you can go. No one else can improve on that. In Jesus, we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And in Galatians 3, Paul even puts Jesus' death on the cross within the broader spiritual context of blessing and curse. Here's Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. So theologians, I think it was Luther first who called this the great exchange. Christ took the curse. He took our rebellion, our failure to obey the law of God. He took it on himself so that we might receive his righteousness and inherit all of the blessings of the new covenant. And most of us, I think, have never stopped to see the cross in this light. Most of us, when we think about the cross, we think about this sort of specific event, but kind of vague place where generic sin is dealt with at a cosmic level. But the cross is not just the place where the problem of sin is dealt with. The cross is the place where the curse and its effect on our lives are taken away and replaced with blessing. So Jesus was punished that we might be forgiven. He was wounded that we might be healed. He was made sin with our sinfulness that we might become righteous with his righteousness. He died our death so that we might share his life. He became poor with our poverty so that we might become rich with his riches. He bore our shame that we might share his glory. He endured our, reject, our rejection so that we could be accepted as children of God. And he became a curse that we might receive blessing. So Jesus' work on the cross is about way more than sin management. The problem or the act of sin removal is part of a much larger work that God was doing and is still doing today. Jesus' final words on the cross were, it is finished. So no more curse, no more shame, no more lies, no more condemnation, no more judgment. It's finished. The curse is finished. Its effects are passing away. And blessing is being unleashed through the Holy Spirit into our lives. And understanding this reality of blessing and curse is foundational to our well-being if we're going to live out of the blessing that God intends for us. We have to understand how the cross fits into the broader narrative and the broader work of God unleashing blessing into the world. Because spiritual maturity, the whole point of the book of James, spiritual maturity is about how well we understand what it means to be blessed by God and how well we extend that blessing to the people around us. That's all spiritual maturity is. How well do I understand that I've been blessed by God? How well do I understand how to live in right relationship with God or correct or proper relationship with God, healthy relationship with God? And then how well do I extend that to other people? Everything Jesus taught is to that end. And everything James is communicating in his letter serves that same purpose, including and especially this section on the tongue. 
So now that we understand the spiritual forces of blessing and cursing, uh, we'll make some application of that specifically in the way that we talk to one another, and we'll talk about our speech. Because our speech is probably the most common way we either bless or curse others. So let's look at just two ways we curse people with our speech, and then two ways we can bless people with our speech, and then we'll be done. The first way we curse people with our speech is with reckless words. Reckless words. Proverbs 12, 18, the words of the reckless pierce like swords, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. And maybe you've experienced this. Maybe you were in a group of people and someone made a joke at your expense and it, it felt like they cut you. Felt like someone just like whipped a sword at you and took a chunk out. Or maybe you're in conflict and somebody said a harsh word, a reckless word. They didn't check it before and it came out and it just got you and buried itself in your heart and it started to affect the way you think about yourself. Or maybe you said something without thinking first and then as the words was leaving your mouth, you tried to pull them back and you couldn't and then you saw the look of pain on their face as they processed what you just said. All of us have been there. James advises us earlier in this letter that we should be slow to speak and this is why. It's because when we speak without thinking first, we curse people. And there's a couple areas in my life where I've really had to work on this. I'm certainly not perfect, um, and I have a lot of room to grow in a lot of areas. But this is one where I've managed to improve at least just a little bit over the years, is that I'm much slower to speak than I used to be. And one area of my life where I'm very prone to uh, reckless speech is in expressing my opinions. So I have, my tendency as a human being is to just put my opinion out there um, even if someone doesn't ask to hear it. And so what I've had to learn to do is slow down and keep my mouth shut and wait until someone actually asks me what I think about something and before, I, uh, before I throw my opinion out there. And I don't do that perfectly, but I'm doing better than I used to do. And so if I do have a moment where it's appropriate for me to voice an opinion, uh, because I haven't just thrown it out there, I've taken the time to think about how to communicate it thoughtfully and in a measured way and not in a heated or a reckless way. And uh, another area where I'm prone to reckless speech is in the area of conflict. And I think this is very true, is that when we are most reckless with our words when we're emotionally activated and when we're in conflict, like just think about the last time you had an argument with your husband or your wife or your parents or your children like, you were an incredible communicator in that moment. There were no verbal tics. You didn't have to stop to think about what to say next. You didn't say, uh, um. No pauses. Just direct line, heart to mouth. It all came out. And you were an incredible communicator in that moment. But we can be reckless with our words when we're in conflict. When I was younger, I used to be very verbal in conflict. And then as I got older, I learned to clamp up and shut down and internalize my feelings instead of expressing them openly, uh, which is also not necessarily good. Uh, because it's true that it's better to stay silent than to say something reckless. But at the same time, you end up like bottling up now and blowing up later uh, when you do that. So the best solution is to learn how to express how we're feeling in an honest but loving way. So one mantra that I've had to adopt in my life is say what you mean, but don't say it mean. Say what you mean, but don't say it mean. Because we curse people with reckless words. Another way that we curse people is with false words. With false words. Proverbs 26, 28. 
A lying tongue hates those it hurts, and a flattering mouth works ruin. A lying tongue hates those it hurts, and a flattering mouth works ruin. That's why God hates lying so much. It's because lying is a relational issue. Lying is the product of hatred in the heart. So we curse people when we lie to them. We curse people when we shade the truth. And this isn't to say that you have to be completely transparent with everybody and like all the time and just air all your dirty laundry to all people, because that's not wise or safe. But deceit perpetuates the curse. That's because we do two things when we lie to people. The first is that we dishonor them, because lying says protecting me is more important than honoring you. It says my needs are more important than yours. And it says my reputation is more important than our relationship. We dishonor people when we lie to them. And we devalue people when we lie to them because lying also says you're not worth the truth. And it says I'm more important than you. And it says I value my comfort more than your trust. So we dishonor and we devalue people when we lie to them. Jesus called Satan the father of lies in John chapter 8. So it should grieve us to our core when we're dishonest or when we're deceitful with people. Uh, because dishonesty is demonic in nature. It's one of the worst ways that we curse people. So we curse people with reckless speech, and we curse people with false speech. And here's two ways that we bless people with our words. The first is with words of encouragement or affirmation. Words of encouragement or affirmation. Proverbs 12:25. anxiety weighs down the heart, but a kind word cheers it up. Anxiety weighs down the heart, but a kind word cheers it up. I chose that proverb very intentionally because I experienced this very powerfully in my life this year. Um, earlier this year, my last really close guy friend got married, and I'm like the only single guy left in the group, which is a, a strange feeling to be the last guy who's not married yet. And uh, it kind of put me in like a weird place emotionally. Um, all these guys live in other states now, and I began to feel kind of lonely, and just, I started to feel just some anxiety. Uh, in my heart about like being the last single guy in my friend group, which even you know seems like a little bit silly to talk about it now or a little bit trivial, but it was really getting me down. And I had met with a pastor friend of mine to get some career advice, and he asked me like, "Well, why aren't you married yet?" Totally honest question, but it like it stuck with me down in here because that's what words do. And I I just started, yeah, why aren't I married yet? There must be something wrong with me. And in the midst of this anxiety that I started to feel about this, my friend Greg, who lives in Seattle, texted me out of the blue, and he said, hey, my wife and I were just talking about how great you are. Do you have time to talk on the phone this week? And I was like, oh, yes. And uh, so I called him. I told him what was going on with me. I was, I was going through a really hard time. And while we're on the phone, he says to me, Matt, your marriage material. And I'm not saying that like to brag. I'm not trying to advertise this morning, all right? But... But he recognized, he recognized, wow, there's this thing that's causing Matt a ton of anxiety. Anxiety weighs down the heart. And he recognized there was an opportunity to speak blessing and to speak encouragement in my life. So he tells me, Matt, your marriage material. And I just started to cry. Because he had no idea what was going on with me in my life when he sent me that first text and reached out and said, hey, do you have time to talk this week? And then once he did, he took the opportunity to speak blessing into my life. And it's worth saying, just because it's Father's Day, that dads, your kids desperately, desperately need to hear these words from you. These words of encouragement and words of affirmation. They need to hear that you're proud of them. 
and they need to hear that you love them, and they need to hear that you notice the ways they're getting it right, and they need to hear that you're there for them when they get it wrong, because words are so, so powerful. And the second way that we bless people with our words is with words of grace. Proverbs 16, 24, gracious words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. So one of the most profound ways we can bless people is to extend grace to them with our words. So when someone lashes out at you or says something hurtful to you, how do you respond? Or when someone has wronged you, do you process it and then express forgiveness? Or do you write them off and cut them out? and keep it all to yourself. God doesn't ask us to excuse wrong behavior, but he does have an expectation of how we respond to it, especially when it comes to our words. He doesn't ask us to pretend that everything's okay. He doesn't expect us not to feel our feelings. But when we find ourselves in conflict with someone, we have an opportunity to extend blessing to them with our speech. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount very clearly, bless those who curse you. So as I wrap up the message and as we're going to approach the Lord's table together, in that spirit, I want us to just rem- I want us to remember and I want us to be reminded that Jesus blessed those who cursed him. He was cursed by us and he was cursed for us. Isaiah 53 says that he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrow and familiar with grief. And as he hung naked and humiliated and utterly cursed on the cross, he spoke these words over the men who put him there. He said, Father, forgive them. He spoke the ultimate words of grace, and he's still speaking those words to us today. I love these words from the Christmas song, Joy to the World, from the forgotten verse that we hardly ever sing anymore. It says, No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found. All the way to you and all the way to me. Let's pray this morning. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you became a curse for us to open the doors to blessing. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would continue to show us how to live in right relationship with God and in right relationship with people, that we would be healthy individuals and that we would be uh, effective agents of God's blessing in the world. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Axe Church in Leander, Texas. Feel free to share this message with others and stay connected with us at axechurchleander.com.